I'm here today interviewing Professor Alex Hyday, Professor of Geochemistry at the Department of Sciences, Oxford University. Professor Halliday, can you tell me a little bit about what your area of expertise is? My field is called isotope geochemistry, which sounds quite complicated, but ultimately it's a way it provides us with tools for figuring out where we come from and how we got to be where we are today. Isotopes can be used for three, broadly three kinds of things. One is for dating, figuring out how old things are. Uh, so we can use this for dating the age of the rocks on the surface of the Earth or the age of the moon. Um, or we can also use isotopes for dating things like uh, the last ice age when it took place. We can also use isotopes though for tracing, sort of isotopic fingerprinting. It's kind of forensic science where you're trying to figure out where things came from. So you can, isotopic compositions can be used to figure out where the water masses are moving from and to in the, in the Earth today, and also where they moved in the past, which we can get from the geological record. Similarly, you can use isotopes to fingerprint the sources of magma coming out of volcanoes in Hawaii and what the interior of the Earth's um, makeup is like. Then the third thing you can use isotopes for is to figure out the conditions under which things have been happening in the past. So right now we're very uh, concerned about the surface temperature of the Earth with global warming. Um, one of the ways we actually get some idea of how anomalous or otherwise the surface temperature is, is by looking at the record of what has gone on in the past. And we get that from isotopes. We can use the proportion of different kinds of isotopes of oxygen in marine shells uh, that grew in oceans in the past uh, that tell us about how the surface of the ocean changed in temperature back through time. And that's the main way, in fact, that we figure out the whole of paleoclimate and the history of uh, the Earth. Uh, in fact, if you want to try and find any part of time uh, which resembles anything like today, you have to basically use these isotopic techniques. So the field is immensely diverse and incredibly powerful. Previously, if you look back um, many years, 200 years ago, somebody attempting to do geology could really look at some rocks and just say roughly that this happened after that. And it would be as useless as knowing that the Battle of Hastings and the uh, Norman conquest of Britain took place sometime between Julius Caesar and the Beatles, but you don't know any more than that. And actually, we now know those ages very precisely using isotopic techniques. In fact, some ages we were able to resolve time spans of less than a million years, uh, of a, just a few hundred thousand years, right at the beginning of the solar system, which was four and a half billion years ago. So the precision of the techniques is fantastic now, and we can uh, sort out detailed chronology and history in a way that nobody would have imagined 50 years ago. So the field's quite an exciting field to be in. Can you tell me a little bit about how you got into geochemistry? What was your background? Well, my background was I grew up in Cornwall in the southwest of England, uh, which is a beautiful place with stunning landscape, but it's also got terrific geology and a lot of mining. 
or it did have a lot of mining. And so I just got interested in rocks and minerals as a teenager and in collecting them. And then from there I got interested in geology and how rocks form and uh, decided I wanted to go to university more than anything else to study geology. Uh, and I ended up going to Newcastle University in the northeast of England uh, where they had a, as well as having a geology department, they also had a physics department that was really interested in the whole subject of the physics of the Earth's interior. And at that time, that was a relatively new area. Um, but physicists in the 1950s and 60s and 70s started developing the techniques for really figuring out um, not just the age of the Earth and things like that, but how the Earth worked inside, and they developed, they figured out continental drift and plate tectonics. And Newcastle was at the center of that revolution in those days. And so I moved, I did my PhD in the physics department rather than geology, and there I was exposed to all this wonderfully exciting science and some of the top people, including some people doing isotope geochemistry. And one person in particular, a guy called Joey Wasserberg from the California Institute of Technology, he's the winner of the Crawford Prize, which is the equivalent of the Nobel Prize in, um, in Earth Sciences. Um, he basically gave a lecture, and I met him one day, and I was so excited about the stuff he was talking about, where they were talking about the chronology that they'd been able to figure out from the moon by bringing samples back with the Apollo, uh, from the Apollo era. I mean, Jerry Wasserberg wasn't just somebody who developed the techniques for measuring those uh, rocks and determining their age. He actually had to persuade the United States government that it was even worth bringing rocks back because originally the whole agenda for going to the moon was strongly political and they weren't going to bring anything back at all. They were just going to get astronauts up there and back. Wasserberg is one of the players who actually helped to persuade the U.S. government that it would be a good idea to bring some stuff back and take a look at it and figure out the origin of the moon from that. So Joey Wasserberg is one of my heroes who had a huge effect on me. Um, another one who I met around the same time was Keith O'Neill's. Uh, Keith O'Neill's was at Oxford University. He then went to America and then he came back to Cambridge and then he came to Oxford again. And then more recently he's been he was chief scientist at the Ministry of Defence, um, and he's most recently been in charge of all of the research councils in the United Kingdom. So he's been the top person in charge of the science budget for the United Kingdom. So Sir Keith O'Neill, as he is now, uh, you know, had a huge effect on me in terms of just showing me how to engage with a good research group and get a good research group going. So when I finished my PhD, I went to see him in New York and I got some ideas about how I wanted to do things in the future. And I developed a research program in Scotland, in Glasgow. Uh, and then I went to America for 12 years, the University of Michigan, and set up a big lab there, and then to Switzerland. And then I moved here just four years ago, and, and we're building what will be the biggest lab of its kind in the world uh, right now here in Oxford. Has it been a slow progression in, in the science, or has there been um, a series of uh, breakthroughs? I think the, without question, um, the field was enormously exciting in the 70s, in particular understanding the interior of the Earth and the way the, the, how the Earth's mantle works and, and moves continents around using geochemistry uh, and using isotopes, and also figuring out the ages of the oldest rocks on Earth, etc. Um, the field was revolutionized again, though, in the 1990s. Uh, at Michigan, we 
acquired the funding for the first of a new kind of mass spectrometer. Mass spectrometer is what you use for measuring isotopic compositions. And this was a machine that was actually built in the United Kingdom, but nobody in the UK had the money at the time to, to, to buy one, uh, whereas America did. And we got the world's first of these instruments, and now there's several hundred of these worldwide. And it's totally transformed the way we make isotopic measurements. And previously, in order to measure the small amounts of trace elements that you actually have in real rocks or meteorites from other, or, or samples from the moon, you could only work on a few elements and, um, and had to develop the techniques quite carefully to actually get those individual elements to work. Um, this new instrument, this new kind of plasma technology, has allowed us to actually open up the whole periodic table for study. And so the range of elements being studied for isotope geochemistry has been totally transformed in the last 10 or 15 years as a result of this new technology. Could, could you tell me a little bit about the theory behind mass spectrometry? What's the science behind it? So, well, the idea is fairly simple, that every atoms, um, isotopes are basically atoms of the same element, but they have different numbers of neutrons. So the neutrons, because they're neutrally charged, don't affect the numbers of electrons, um, which are negatively charged. It's just the protons that do that. And so a given element basically um, is characterized by particular chemical properties that relate to the way the electrons behave, and that's related to how many protons you've got. Uh, neutrons don't affect the chemistry, but they basically uh, just affect the mass. And a mass spectrometer divides up an element according to that mass. Uh, it basically takes the atoms, ionizes them, which uh, means you can apply an electric field to them and accelerate them in a charged field, into a magnet, which then divides them according to their mass. And uh, the proportions of the different isotopes um, then tell you about the, give you the isotopic composition. And some of those isotopes, those proportions will vary very slightly as a result of things like radioactive decay or temperature or whatever it is. And it's those things that we actually use to define the isotopic composition. The effects, though, you know, very often nowadays are very, very small that we're looking at. We're, look, we're now making measurements, uh, variations where the uncertainties, the analytical uncertainties on the isotopic ratio uh, are of the order of a few parts per million. These are enormously precise measurements, and they're the most precise measurements in the world because there's no other field that requires them to be this precise, typically. And so um, improving the precision of the measurements and improving the technology and improving the range of elements that can be studied in small samples uh, with different ionization methods is part of the game where if you can basically develop new techniques like that, then you can rad radically change the whole science area and um, get into areas of science that you've never been able to do before. So for me, in the, I did my PhD on stuff to do with dating mineral deposits, but now I'm working primarily on the origin of the solar system because with these new techniques that we had in America, I was able to uh, explore a whole bunch of elements that nobody had been able to ionize before uh, at the same level of efficiency and measure the isotopic compositions in meteorites and lunar samples and bits of Mars that were meteorites. And that allowed us to study the whole origin of the solar system, which has taken my field from, taken my research from geology and things to do with rocks to understanding how planets form and how stars form. So my field is, I've changed completely in terms of what I'm mainly focused on, although I do still do some, some geology. It's primarily looking at planet formation now.
So, so stepping back a little bit about the mass spectrometer, why is it important to be able to uh, get information that tells you the composition of the material? Why is that important for science? So the, um, the isotopic composition is affected by things like radioactive decay. So every radioactive atom that undergoes decay it forms a daughter atom. And so the proportions of those daughter atoms in the element will tell you about time and how much time has elapsed. Um, similarly, isotopic temp things like temperature and, and uh, the environment in which um, the, um, an element is actually incorporated into a mineral or rock uh, will be subtly affected, uh, will, will have a subtle effect on the stable isotopic composition. That is, the, the, the light isotopes might be incorporated preferentially to the heavy isotopes. And you can calibrate that and deduce temperature from that. So the, these measurements and improving these measurements give you the tools for investigating the past and investigating the way the Earth is working even today. And so that's the, you know, that, those, those, that technology is incredibly important and taking it forward is incredibly important for making discoveries. In fact, actually that's true in most areas of science, that it's new technology that primarily makes the massive changes in discovery. Can you just explain a little bit about how, how we link radioactive decay to time? Sure. So, well, the basic idea is fairly simple. That you know, if you've got, if you know, if you know that uh, a certain substance decays at a certain rate, and you've got a certain amount of it, um, and you know how long it's been, you know, you know that it's been decaying, um, you wouldn't really be able to figure out time just by measuring the amount of the substance because you need to know how much was there in the past. But the nice thing about isotope geochemistry is that every isotope that decays, every atom that decays, forms a daughter atom. And so you can figure out how long it's been decaying by measuring the amount of daughter as well. So there are three things you need to figure out the amount of time that has elapsed. You need to know the amount of parent that is around, the amount of daughter that has formed, and the decay constant, the rate at which the parent goes to the daughter. And from that, you can figure out time. And of course, measuring the decay constants for these nuclides is really important, but it can be done quite precisely now. And so a lot of the um, concerns people had at one stage about how well we really uh, knew, you know, how you are decay constants, that's all been pretty much done away with. And... Um, we can actually resolve very, very small time differences with these techniques to extremely high precision. So the, so the science behind this was probably discovered over 100 years ago, perhaps. It's the instrumentation now become very accurate that allows you to analyze things at a, at a much greater quality and more precision. Sure. Yeah, I mean, when, when it, when you, if you look at the, the history of the subject, it's about 100 years old, uh, when it was about 100 years ago that... Um, um, Rutherford basically first um, started looking at the laws of radioactive decay. Um, so previously Becquerel and the Curies had actually figured out that radioactivity was, was going on and they'd also figured out that radioactivity produced heat. And, that ex you know, and so one of the main reasons why we thought the Earth wasn't very old in the past was because it should take a relatively short time to cool down to its current temperature. And the discovery of radioactivity gave us a new source of heat, which hadn't been taken account of before. 
Uh, but it was Rutherford and his colleagues, a number of other people as well, Soddy and a few other people, who basically first worked on the uh, rate of radioactive decay and showed that it was an exponentially decreasing process. Uh, they also figured out that um, the, you could actually measure the amount of a radioactive substance and the amount of a daughter, and actually from, one, from those two things you could figure out an age. So they did this initially, but this is before anybody knew about isotopes, that there were, different, there were neutrons or, or different kinds of atoms. Uh, so they just measured the amount of uranium and measured the amount of, the amount of lead in a uranium ore, and basically, from weighing one uh, and weighing the other, they figured out how much time had involved had been involved. It was about a few hundred million years, and um, they, you know, later on in the 1930s, when isotopes were discovered, the whole technique became much more precise, and um, you know, it really boomed. I guess in the in the um, in the 60s and 70s, but now it's you know turning into this amazing fine art of extremely high precision mass spectrometry that allows us to explore everything. So we've gone from the days where we just date rocks uh, to the days where we actually are exploring um, the details of how the solar system was formed um, and the, the detailed aspects of different parts of the, of the solar system in terms of how they were built, the, how, how quickly the dust was melted, how quickly the planets were made, uh, when the volatiles were lost, when the moon, when the moon was added, when the core formed on the Earth, and all that kind of stuff, at the beginning of the solar system, and similarly today we can actually resolve um, extremely small time differences and details of how climate has changed on the surface of the Earth by looking at past um, sediment records in the oceans and corals, etc. Again, using isotopic chronometry coupled with these stabilized techniques for registering past conditions. Um, but it's going beyond that because now people can measure the, the stabilized type of compositions of elements like iron and, and um, all kinds of weird elements that nobody's really studied before and nobody knows what the information is that it's going to tell you. But some of these elements are really important biologically. And biology will fractionate their isotopic compositions. And, you know, if there's metabolism involved, and if there are different ways of metabolizing iron, you could potentially trace the evolution of that process over time. And when certain pathways became biologically important, by looking, the is as the, looking at using the isotopes as a kind of a fingerprint uh, on those past or using the, on the, with those past organisms. So there's a vast array of new science that's now developing. Now we're getting into nanoparticles, you know, which everybody's worried about in the environment. Uh, and we could potentially look at the isotopic fractionations associated with those and see what they will tell us about tracing nanoparticles and where they come from and some of the processes in which they're produced. So there's, there's a lot of stuff we could get into. We, and we're starting to explore what could be done in medicine as well. Uh, because trace elements are typically, you know, can be incredibly important both in terms of the regular running of the human body and also in terms of things that can go wrong. And the isotopes and the way they fractionate may be able to tell us, um, give us a clue that something's gone wrong in a certain part of the body. So there are, there's everything to go for right now. It's a very, very exciting time for the field. It sounds like we're now approaching uh, the point where we can really understand how old the Earth is with some degree of accuracy. Is this true? Yes, well, in the sense that the Earth didn't form in an instant, so there's no such thing as an age for the Earth, really. We know it was four and a half billion years ago, 
but actually it took about 100 million years to happen. Um, so in the case, you know, one of the things we've been, that's been an immense success of multiple collectorized PMS, which is this new kind of mass spectrometry we developed 15 years ago, um, or uh, helped to develop, and certainly applied vigorously, uh, was the, the fact that you could actually explore new chronometers of planetary growth and core formation. And so by getting samples from Mars, we have a, a close to 50 samples now that have landed on the Earth as Martian meteorites. Um, and getting samples from the Moon, from the Apollo program, and also from uh, getting samples of, from meteorites that come from various asteroids uh, in the solar system, we've been able to put together, um, with the help of other people, of course, doing the same kind of stuff or other kinds of isotopic systems, we've been able to put together a chronology for the solar system that actually is starting to hang together rather well. Uh, and it's very, very clear that in the early solar system, things, on the one hand, happen extremely fast. So within, probably within less than a million years of the sun forming, we actually already had small planetary objects, which were melting, had volcanoes, and had magnetic, uh, well, not magnetic, but they had cores, uh, metallic cores in them. Um, and we can see these in our iron meteorite in iron meteorites, and we've been able to date those and actually figure out how quickly they formed. Um, Mars may have formed as well quite quickly, but how fast the Earth formed uh, is, a, is a bit of a, a non-question because it could have actually grown in several different ways. What we do know is that it didn't finish growing until about 100 million years after the start of the solar system, which is when the Moon formed. And the Moon formed as a result of an enormous collision between an object that was roughly 10% of the mass of the Earth with the Earth when it was only 90% formed. I mean, these numbers aren't exact, but it's roughly those kinds of numbers. And that um, collision with a glancing blow uh, put the Earth and the debris around it into a spin, which ended up producing uh, the angular momentum that we have today for the Earth-Moon system, with the Moon swinging around the Earth. And also, it gave us a, a hot, fiery start to the moon. So when you look up at the moon at night, you can see those sort of white patches and then some dark bits. The white patches, nobody knew until people went there and brought stuff back. But they're made of a, a rock called a northosite, which is basically made up of a mineral called felspar. And the thing about felspar is it's quite light, low density. So the best explanation we have for that white, crusty, felspar-rich surface uh, is that actually there was a magma ocean. The whole planet was molten. Um, and th this stuff, these crystals condense, uh, crystallized out and then floated to the top. And this is basically borne out by the ages of these rocks. They're the oldest rocks on the moon, basically. So the moon started with this incredibly hot, fiery start molten and then basically produce these uh, felspars at the surface of the Earth. And we can use that to sort of say some things about what the Earth may have been like initially. There aren't any rocks from the first 500 million years of the history of the Earth. So we can go back about 4 billion years, but the first five or 600 million years of the solar system are missing from our geological record on Earth. There are just a few grains of sand that have been found that are that old. Um, so we don't actually have anything that we can walk around and or put our uh, walk around on or put our hands on and say this formed at that time, but we can deduce a lot from looking at the moon 
And uh, it's a wonderful laboratory for actually being able to uh, figure things out. Now, one of the key things about this is that it means that the, um, you know, if, you, if, you, if you've got this hot, fiery start to the, the moon, um, then that could be produced in a variety of ways. But an important test for this giant impact, as it came to be known, was that the moon formed after the Earth was already 90% formed. And so where isotopes came in, apart from just dating the rocks on the moon, was actually to determine the age of the moon itself, which we were able to show happened more than 50 million years after the start of the solar system. And now the latest data we've got, we've just produced a paper on this, um, suggests that um, the moon formed about 100 million years after the start of the solar system. So there's some new data that's come out of my lab, my, my former lab, it's, it's no longer my work, um, my former lab in Zurich, um, which suggests that things had to have happened quite late. And with some looking at the various isotopic constraints, um, we've now written a paper suggesting this probably was about 100 million years after the start of the solar system, which is really late, after the other planets had formed. And that's basically the last big thing that affected the Earth. Now, one of the things about that is that it immediately tells us that the Earth had a, a very catastrophic start. So the, we think about, you know, impactors hitting the Earth and wiping out the dinosaurs. The size of the impactor that, that probably caused the demise of the dinosaurs was about 10 kilometers in size. When you're talking about an object the size of the, uh, that's 10% of the mass of the Earth, that's the size of the planet Mars hitting the Earth. And it's sufficient not just to wipe out any life that there was, it's not just vaporize the oceans, it would actually vaporize the rocks of the Earth, or major portions of them. So the Earth would have become largely molten and would have been severely torn apart and broken up. Uh, and large parts of it would have been vaporized. And so you've actually had a rock atmosphere uh, of several thousand degrees. In fact, some simulations suggest the temperatures could have been 40,000 degrees, incredibly high temperatures in parts. So the... Um, that whole environment for how the Earth started uh, means that we've got, you know, regardless of what happened before, things were severely reset about 100 million years after the start of the solar system. And more or less from that point on, the Earth has been cooling and we've been um, basically building the continents and oceans that we have today. And one of the key questions about that is if you heat the Earth to that extent, what else do you do to the chemistry of the Earth? And there's been some suggestions that the Earth uh, was, any atmosphere we have was, before that, was completely blown off and volatilized in that process and maybe lost from the Earth. In fact, if you look at the composition of the Earth and how much it's got of what we call moderately volatile elements like potassium and sodium, we're actually depleted relative to objects further out like Mars. Um, so, one of the weird questions that people have been puzzling about is if the Earth is actually more volatile depleted, if it's got less volatiles than other planets further out, why has it got water? And if you don't have water, you can't really, as far as we know, do any kind of sensible life form in our solar system. So we need the water to have life, and at the same time it's not obvious why we have the water that we do have. So one of the big issues that we face in the future uh, is understanding uh, how the planets 
um, acquired their inventory of water in particular. And nowadays, of course, scientists are increasingly looking for other planets that may have life on them. So about over, a little bit over 10 years ago, the, the Swiss group based in Geneva announced the first discovery of an extrasolar planet, a planet that was going around another star. And since then, um, hundreds of planets have now been found going around other stars. Um, and the search is on to be able to detect something that's maybe an Earth-sized planet, which might have life on it. And then you would say, well, what would be the signs of life? What would you look for? And one of the big issues, of course, is, well, hang on, how do we do it here in our own solar system? And the fact is, we don't really understand how we did it in our own solar system. We don't know where the water came from that produced the, um, that gave us an environment that was fit for life. Um, there are some questions about where the carbon came from, even. And so there's, there's a little bit of uncertainty there as to how you build a habitable planet, a planet that can really sustain life, that's anything like our own, an Earth-like planet, uh, and what those conditions should be like. So there's a lot of work to be done in the future in terms of taking all this forward, um, quite apart from exploring our own solar system. Um, as information comes in from other stars over the next 20 years, uh, there's going to be a lot of interesting uh, stuff to look at from the point of view of um, we will be detecting, or we will almost certainly be detecting Earth-like planets out there. And the question of whether they could be habitable and what the indications are that they would have been habitable uh, are, are actually very, very interesting. So, I mean, again, it goes back to some of the special things about the Earth. The Earth has got tides because we've got a moon. And so tidal, uh, tidal environments could, could actually be very, very important from the point of view of developing biology. Um, the Earth has got a certain amount of spin to it, uh, angular momentum, that has been generated by the giant impact that formed the moon. If you don't have that, then things get awfully hot on one side, which is what is happening on Mercury. Uh, and so, you know, it may well be that we have to regard giant impacts as being uh, moon-forming impacts with a certain kind of distribution of planets, um, uh, satellites around them as being quite important from the point of view of creating a sustainable environment uh, for biology. But then, of course, there's other habitats out there further out in the solar system, uh, like around Jupiter and Saturn um, and Mars, where the conditions are quite different, where people are also considering uh, the potential for life to develop. So it's actually a very, very exciting time right now. There's a, a massive amount of effort going into exploring our own solar system. There's a massive amount of effort from the point of view of exploring other stars that may have uh, planets going around them which may be habitable. And then, of course, back here, we're busy sort of developing the techniques um, both to solve some of these major issues but also to analyze some of the small samples we'll be getting from samples that come back from planetary missions to Mars and things like that in the future. So, so if I've got this correct, the, the story goes in the late 60s when we, when we sent rockets to the moon, we did actually recover some of the moon samples we could analyze. And then as mass spectrometry got more and more accurate, we were able to get some kind of dating between the relationship between the Earth and the moon. And the formation of the moon was one of the most traumatic things that happened in Earth's history, perhaps. Would you, would you say the Earth is unique because of the moon 
from that, that uniqueness might have contributed to those having water? Is, is, is the moon that vital to, to life on, on Earth? Well, I, th I, wouldn't, I, I don't think anybody would like to say quite that, but I think in the sense that the, the just maybe to set the, tr the record exactly straight, people are already dating rocks um, from the moon when they, as soon as they brought them back. And so we knew the age of some of the rocks on the moon. We just weren't sure of the age of the moon itself. And similarly, people were dating rocks on Earth, but they weren't sure how quickly the Earth was put together. And so the, the, the new techniques have made a major difference from the point of view of understanding actually how quickly you built the planets themselves, rather than the ages of the rocks on those planets. So the, um, uh, but the, you know, the role of the moon in the whole of this is a little bit un clear at the moment, except that there are some basically obvious things that if you, we know that it basically generates an environment that is actually quite um, important for us. But, you know, if we'd had a giant impact that had basically lost all the water, drove off all the hydrogen from the Earth, say, maybe there was hydrogen around before, and we just drove it all off, then we wouldn't have an environment that was fit for life, even if we had a giant impact. And so the question is, where did that hydrogen come from? Where did the you know, the water that fills up our oceans, and is some of its, you know, was some of it stored inside the interior of the Earth, and has been released subsequently? Possible places to hide, you could hide hydrogen in some of the minerals that are actually deep inside the interior of the Earth. You could hide them even in uh, metallic iron cores. So it's conceivable the core had some hydrogen in it. Or was it added later? In which case, how was it added later? Is it possible it came in? From a comet, uh, was it? Did it? Was it added as a as a from a, a series of watery planetesimals that collided with the Earth after the Moon had already um, been formed? So there are a number of theories that have been out there that have been proposed, and at the moment, there the cometary theory, the idea that actually the water was already intrinsically in the Earth and it's basically um, been um, it survived the giant impact. And the idea that there are late planetary objects, uh, planetesimals, chondrites as we call them, that came in from the asteroid belt and added the water, they're all basically being thrown around and certain things move the arguments in one direction and certain things move the arguments in another direction. At the moment, the cometary theory is probably a bit down in terms of its most, like, most likely explanation. The idea of... Um, adding water from the outer asteroid belt as uh, major asteroids hitting the Earth has been more popular. But most recently, probably the number one thing that people are pushing for is the idea that actually the water that's in the Earth was always in the Earth, and it somehow survived the giant impact. And we just need to understand how that happened. And one of the most important bits of information on this came from some new work that was published in Nature by scientists in the United States. Um, just this last uh, few months, they showed that some of the lavas in the moon, they've been able to extract small amounts of water from them and show how much water is in there. So the moon is supposed to be completely dry, but actually the interior of the moon has actually got water in it, which nobody really realized before. And so somehow water survives in a way that we hadn't quite recognized before as a volatile element or volatile molecule um, uh, in these environments.